This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by RevTown. RevTown is the home of premium jeans at a revolutionary price. The secret is Decade Denim, made with super soft, super strong yarn from Milan, Italy. These jeans perform like a track pant. Literally, they do. I've been able to do barbell squats in them comfortably. They feel soft as sweats on the inside and have the look and feel of proper jeans on the outside. Get ridiculous quality and unbelievable fit for half the price at RevTownUSA.com slash manliness. That's RevTownUSA.com. Dot com slash manliness. One more time, RevTown, R-E-V, townusa.com slash manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Walking can seem, well, rather pedestrian, but my guest today makes the case that walking can act as a gateway to explore memory, meaning, and what it means to be human. His name is Arlene Kage. He's an adventurer and philosopher. We had him on the show last year to discuss his book, Silence. That's episode number 433, if you want to check that out. Arlene's latest book is called Walking, and we begin our conversation discussing the connection between bipedal locomotion and silence, and how walking instead of driving can help slow down time and deepen our memory. Arlene makes the case that embracing voluntary hardship can enrich your life and how walking can be a step towards that. He then shares why going for a walk can help you solve problems, why most great philosophers were also committed walkers, what the Adam and Eve story can teach us about the need for exploration, and how walking can be one of the most radical things you can do in the modern age. If you want to take a walk after listening to this show, or maybe you'll walk while you're listening. Either way, after it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash walking. Arlene joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Arlene Kage, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. So we had you on last year to talk about your book, Silence. You got a new book out called Walking, One Step at a Time. How is this book, Walking, a continuation of your thoughts in your book, Silence? I think it very much is. You know, I walked a few years ago. I walked alone to the South Pole for 50 days and nights under the midnight sun as the first in history with absolutely in absolutely total silence. And somehow, you know, silence is abs- as abstract as um, walking is concrete. And it's very much about inner silence. So somehow walking and silence belongs together, belong together. Well, a lot of times people, when they're walking, they aren't in the, they're not at the South Pole like you were. They're surrounded by traffic, dogs, neighbors, but do you still think there's a silence going on when, even when you're walking around in a, a busy city neighborhood? Absolutely. You know, it, it doesn't have to be. Somehow, I think in a, in, in a noisy city or noisy daily life, you need to invent your own silence. You know, you, know, you can't wait for silence to come to you. And I think by um, walking, it's so much easier to find this in the silence compared to like sitting down or, you know, looking into a screen. Well, one of the interesting things you start off talking about in the book with walking is that it can change our sense of time compared to when we drive or like or on a bus or a train or airplane. So what happens? What do you think happens when we walk? How does it slow down or speed up time? You know, somehow time passes much more quickly when you increase your speed of uh, travel. And I, you know, it's somehow... When you speed up in a, if in a car, it's like time narrows in. And when you slow down, when you walk, it's like time is, is, is expanding. And that's counterintuitive because we think, oh, well, if I can get someplace faster, 
I'll have more time to do the things I want to do. But that's, that's not the case. I mean, in sort of lived experience, like phenomenology, right? You, you'd get there fast, but then you still feel like, I have no time. Like that just went by so fast. But if you take a walk, it seems to prolong the experience. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's something everybody who walks, you know, that's the experience, everything everybody you know, shares. That's kind of the great secret all walkers share. That time is prolonged when you walk. It's like a time machine. And of course, you know, mathematically, you know, what you said is true that if you drive instead of walking, you save time. My experience somehow in real life is absolutely the the opposite. When I speed up, I don't experience anything. Everything is the rush. And when I eventually get to the place I want to go to, I, you know, I don't have any memories. I didn't, you know, it, nothing happened. But when I walk the same distance, I see things, I listen, I smell things. The environment is changing much more slowly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's enriching my life. So walking can not only prolong your life because it, it helps your health, right? Uh, so it'll help you live to old age, but it can actually make you feel like feel at, on a like a mental level, an emotional level that your your life is longer. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, you know, it's obviously if you walk a lot, uh, you will live longer. You will have a more healthy life. Your heart will beat, you know, in a better in a better way. Your lungs works better. You sleep better at night. That's only half the truth. And my kids, they kind of kept on asking me when they were small. I had three t- three daughters. They kept on asking me, "Dad, why do we have to walk when it's so f- much faster to drive?" And you know. That's a very good question. And I found it very difficult to come up with good answers to that question. And, you know, I tried to tell them, you know, all these health benefits, but of course, that's only boring to kids. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I sat down to write this book, to write about, you know, what you f- what kind of wonders your feet can do to you. And, you know, it's a kind of a little mystery because in each foot you have this 26 bones, 33 joints, and more than 100 tendons. And somehow those feet can become your best friends. So you walked to the South Pole. It took you 50 days. Did did it feel longer than 50 days? Did it feel like you were there for eternity? I mean, (laughs) yeah, you know, this kind of strange feeling that you, on one way, you feel that you are there for eternity. And at the same time, you also feel that it's just this kind of, tiny second of your whole life so somehow you know time really doesn't matter you kind of beyond time when you walk to the south pole and that's not only when i walk to the south pole it's also you know sometimes when i do a little bit outdoors here in uh, norway and you can i think you could can do it anywhere in the world that you know for a few minutes hours or maybe some days you escape time which is a beautiful beautiful feeling so related to prolonging the sense that our life is longer Related to that is this idea that it can walking can deepen memories, and you mentioned a little bit of what what why you think that is. When you walk, you smell things, you see things, you hear things that you otherwise wouldn't smell, hear, or see when you're driving in a car. Exactly, you have this you know strange bond between slowness and memory, and between speed and uh, forgetting, and. I think, you know, that's, that's, you know, just when you walk in the, walk in the street, I have a high pace and I have forgotten something. Then I slow down to try to remember what I have forgotten. 
or you're kind of wondering, you know, if you're going to walk to the right or the left or straight ahead, then you also slow down to kind of focus. So, you know, the higher the speed somehow, the less intelligent you are in the present moment. And also, you know, you're forgetting faster. And also I think it comes down to feelings. Like um, when I try to walk away from a problem or forget the problem, I speed up to try to, to forget. But when I walk slowly, somehow I can digest those feelings and, you know, go through those feelings. You know, I've had that same experience. It's hard for me to remember car rides with my kids, but I can remember walks that I took with them in my neighborhood or on some hiking trail quite vividly. And what we've been talking about really re- reminds me of research that says when you do novel things, time slows down because your brain pays more attention and takes more footage of what's going on around you. And that makes the memory seem longer because there's more footage to unspool later. So that would be the case when you take a walk. You're experiencing more stimuli that you wouldn't if you're in the seat of your same old car, just wasn't through the landscape. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, that's also about, you know, what we just talked about also, you know, to to make your life feel longer. Because of course, if you always have a high speed, always doing the same things, driving, looking onto a screen, different screens on the PC or your telephone, you're into social media, checking the news all the time then it will feel like life is short. And, you know, I'm 56 years old, so I tend to go to these different birthdays, people turning 60 or 80 or 90 years old. And at least one will do a speech and talk about life being short and all these days, weeks and years, and he didn't really understand that was life. And that's, I think it's a bit sad. And it's, you know, it's about missing this huge opportunity to live a rich life. And... Then again, as I said, if you sometimes walk, do different things, slow down, you know, live a little bit more in the present, not thinking too much because when you're thinking, you're thinking about the past or the future, then life feels long and, you know, life is long. So in our last conversation about your book, Silence, you talked about this idea of injecting or putting in voluntary hardship into our lives. So let's do a refresher. Why do you think it's important that we do that? And then the follow-up question to that is, how can walking do that? <laughs> you know, I'm talking as a Norwegian when I say, you know, talk about the importance of making life more difficult than necessary. Obviously, if I had been born in poverty in Sudan, it would have been differently. Then life is already very difficult. But, you know, if you're born in Norway or many places in the States, um, you really don't have to do anything in life in the sense that you know you hardly ever even have to get off the bed in the, in in the morning and the mountaineer george mallory you know who cl- tried to climb mount everest in the 1920s he famously replied when he was asked why do you want to climb everest he famously replied because it's there and i think that's a very good answer because i think you know what he had in mind was that you really don't need to climb Everest. You don't really need to do anything in life. You can always choose the easiest option. And I quite often, you know, you know, have to choose between two things that go for the easiest. But that's quite often a mistake because then you also live like an unfree human being because your life is so not predestined that you always do the easiest part. And if you're going to live a free life, you need to possess time and you need to choose the most difficult options. In life, and when I look on my life, I think you know it's almost all the great fun, all the excitement I have been doing, all great experiences in life. Uh, they have been due to me 
choosing the most difficult to the easiest option. Right. So it's going back to that idea of memory and prolonging your sense of life. Doing hard things can can add to that. Exactly. Because, you know, you can sit all day uh, looking onto your phone, but you won't experience anything. You know, you're not going to fulfill any of your potentials. If you do the opposite, you know, make life a little bit more difficult to get up to do a walk. And of course, the walk is a little bit more difficult usually than to drive and or sit down. But it's so much more enriching. It's not, you know, do a little walk is not life changing, but, you know, always, there's always something which is happening. There's always something that is kind of adding to your life. And, you know, so somehow, I think, you know, also try to tell my kids, if you have to choose between something which is, you know, really easy and something which is more difficult, you should almost always try to choose the most difficult option. But, you know, it's it's a struggle. So, you know, quite often, you know, I don't do it myself, but, you know, it's, I think it's important to keep in mind. And you mentioned that idea when you choose the easy way, when we do that, when we choose convenience, we think we're actually, we're, we're being masters of our fate. But you make this case, and other philosophers have also made this case, that when you choose convenience or ease, you actually are becoming kind of a slave unintentionally. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's a very, you know, valid point. You know, like many philosophers have been writing about this. And uh, somehow, you know, you need to choose if you're going to lead your own life or if you're going to be led by others. And I think, you know, if you are, you know, walking, for instance, making your own choices, sometimes, you know, make life more difficult than necessary, you know, walk a few kilometers extra, getting up early in the morning, then somehow, you know, you lead your own life, you're in charge of your own life. And that's when, you know, life will feel great. And I think the opposite, you know, to choose this easiest option is very much about, you know, in the long run, for instance, that you get, uh, you know, I'm not anti-technology or anti-capitalism, but, you know, but if you kind of get absolutely addicted to different apps on a mobile phone, you know, you might quite easily, you know, feel restless, sad, lonely, and eventually, you know, many people came to be depressed from that kind of living. So, you know, short term, that's the most tempting, but a little bit longer term, it's a big mistake. I think you talked about, you mentioned Wally, the movie Wally. Yeah. There's an example of that. So, yeah, like in the movie, the humans have to leave Earth because it got too polluted, but then they just become sort of this uh, dependent on this technology where they just sit around in these chairs. And it got to the point where, like, they couldn't walk anymore. They couldn't do anything. Like, they became slaves to the technology. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's the reason I mentioned this movie, well, is, you know, one reason was because I saw it with my kids. And it made an impression because, you know, Wally is 800 years into, into the future. But, you know, a little bit of what happens in the movie is happening with us today that we walk less and less. And I think that's a mistake because we are walking species. And it's like Homo sapiens has, has always been walking in the sense that it was not we uh, Homo sapiens, you invented the possibility to walk on two legs. It was the other way around. It was a possibility to walk on two legs that invented human beings. And we have always, you know, been exploring by walking, by doing something physical, by experiencing. That's the basis of all our knowledge and, you know, development of our, you know, of, of our brains. But today we are the first generation who starts to 
sit more and more, move less and less, and eventually, like in Wall E, we hardly walk at all. The way we move, as I said, is, is by motorized vehicles. And then it's a question, you know, it's will we still be homo sapiens if we don't walk anymore? And it's, yeah, the statistics are pretty dismal. You highlight this fact that it was very stark. You compared the activity, the physical activity of children who are going to school to physical activity of people in prison. And people in prison, on average, get more physical activity than kids at school. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that really surprised me when I did research to my book. I thought, you know, I asked myself, you know, what people in society spend the less less time doing outdoors? And I thought, you know, that would be people in prisons. And it was hard to find statistics, but in England, you know, I found it. And it appeared that one quarter of all kids in, no, at least about 40% of all kids in England, they spend less than one hour doing outdoors a day. And actually one quarter of kids in England, they don't do any outdoors at all during the average day. So, you know, it was a bit sad to see that it's kids that spend, you know, doing the less time outside their homes in society. And, you know, that's a very tough start on their lives. And, you know, it's a very unfortunate start because, you know, they're, they're not going to be qualified for life, to have a great life later. So you're a philosopher besides being an adventurer and you like to walk and you are part of a line of philosophers who also were walkers. So who are some of these other famous philosopher walkers that you've encountered in your, your reading? You know, it's surprisingly many philosophers who kind of kept on walking. Of course, Socrates, uh, Kierkegaard, they were street philosophers. They just walked the streets in their cities, Athens or Copenhagen, to talk to people and see what was happening around them. And and, and of course, Nietzsche famously said he could not, you know, think any great ideas without, you know, being walking. And it's also even reflected in our language, in the English language, just like in the Norwegian language, that like we say, you move and you're being moved and motion, emotion. And if you go to Silicon Valley today, you'll see, you know, People walk a lot. They have meetings and they're walking. And one of the reasons they're inspired by Steve Jobs, of course, because he was a keen walker and he had this, and he, you know, he told his kids, no way you're going to use too much products from Apple. You need to move around. You need to live a healthy life. And of course, the possibility for becoming a new Brett Steve Jobs by walking is not great, but you know, it helps a little bit. I mean, what do you think the connection is between? thinking and walking like why do you think all those philosophers like even aristotle he was a walker like his followers were called peripatetics it's like you know walking philosophers like what do you think is going on there the connection between walking and analytic thinking you know i think all walkers throughout you know history they have have had the same experience in, in the sense that as soon as they get up on two legs and start to walk their heads clear up. They're thinking more clearly. Ideas are coming to them. It's super good for their creativity. And fortunately, scientists have been st- started to study this phenomenon. And in 2014 at uh, Stanford University in the US, they tested people, you know, in terms of creativity, uh, like uh, giving them things to do while sitting down and think- giving them things to do after they have been walking for 50 minutes. And 
creativity, they increased 60% by only walking for 15 minutes. And of course, it doesn't last for days, but it lasts for a few hours. And then you need to do another walk. So like Darwin, when he was, you know, working really hard, he had this, Charles Darwin, he had this walking path. So, you know, whenever he kind of didn't manage to think any further, didn't manage to write, he got up, he walked his walking path, 10, 15 minutes, came back to his office, and then, you know, his head was working again and he could do his work. So I guess the takeaway there is if you have a, a big problem, a hard problem you're trying to solve, maybe instead of thinking harder about it, just go outside and take a walk. Yeah. And, you know, that's sometimes the beauty of walking that, you know, you don't even have to think about that problem. And that's also another, you know, one of the big questions in the history of philosophy. Can you come up to answers to questions you haven't asked yourself? And Socrates was battling with this question. He felt it was a stupid question, but he didn't manage to come up with a good answer because Socrates' idea was that we're thinking with our head, our brain only. But then, you know, as all walkers have experienced that you're not only thinking with the head, you're also thinking with your with your whole, with your think with the whole body, also thinking with your with your feet, and that's the reason why you don't have to be aware of what's going on in your mind, but you come back from a walk and suddenly you sit, you know, with two solutions to problems you didn't even know you had. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. After thousands of hours perfecting the science, Lightbox has figured out how to grow the perfect lab-grown diamond. Lab-grown diamonds are essentially chemically the same as natural ones just made in a lab. To make them, they use a plasma reactor to heat pieces of lab-grown diamonds up to temperatures almost as hot as the sun. In about two weeks, those little seeds turn into full carrot stones. Lightboxes hack the process to consistently create their gorgeous stones. And here's where it gets really interesting. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds aren't just made the same every time. They're also priced the same. Each carrot is $800. So there you have it. Get the facts and see the science behind the sparkle at lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness and use code manliness for $25 off. That's lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness, code manliness for $25 off. Holidays are coming up. So if you're looking for a gift for someone in your life, lab-grown diamond might be in the, the works for you. Again, lightboxjewelry.com slash manliness, code manliness for $25 off. Also by Omigo. It is the 21st century. Using toilet paper, that's some 20th century stuff. We haven't gotten to the three seashells yet, like in Demolition Man. If you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. But the next best thing is the Omigo toilet seat bidet. This thing's fantastic. Get you clean every time. You control the entire experience by adjusting water temperature, position, pressure, width, and movement. They also got a dryer on there. They got a deodorizer. There's a light. So if you gotta go to the bathroom at night, you can see. And it's easy to install. I put mine on in about, took me about 15 minutes. Really easy. No plumber needed. My kids love this thing. They call it the robot toilet. It's been a game changer in our household. We've used less toilet paper. It is fantastic. So if you'd like to check this out, you have better health, better hygiene, check out myomigo.com slash manliness and you'll get 10% off your Omigo toilet bidet. Again, myomigo.com slash manliness. One more time, myomigo.com slash manliness to get 10% off the toilet seat bidet of your dreams. Go check it out today. And now back to the show. Diogenes, the famous cynic philosopher, he said, it is solved by walking. Solvitor ambulando. Exactly. Beautiful quote. It is. I got it hanging up on my wall. (laughs) <laughs> in my bedroom. So another aspect of walking that you hit on in the book is getting lost. And we live in a world where it's almost impossible to get lost now, thanks to GPS. Like There's always that blue dot on Google Maps that knows exactly where you're at. What happens when we can no longer get lost? What do you think happens when we can no longer get lost anymore? 
You know, I see the great advantages with Google Maps, but you know, I also really dislike it. So I've taken it off my phone. And the same reasons, I think, you know, one reason is because I saw this study that actually we people, we have become less intelligent the last 10 years, thanks to, you know, all these apps, because we don't, you know, we don't do maths anymore, you know, you know, and we don't do navigation anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, you know, slowly makes us dumber. And so that's one side of it, but also just not being able to get lost anymore. I think that's, you know, it's, that's, 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 uh, I don't think it's good for anything. And I remember when I was a kid, I was hiking in the forests and I got lost all the time. And of course, you know, it's a great experience not to know where you are. You get a little bit worried and you start to wonder and you really had to think, you had to be creative. It's healthy for you. And talking about it, I remember when I was maybe seven years old and my brother Gunnar was 10 years old. And we were out hiking in the forest close to where we were living in Oslo. And we got a bit worried because we lost our way. And uh, we tried, you know, tried to find our way back home. And then suddenly my brother said with a big smile, Oh, I got lost here before. So now I know where we are. No, I think that's a very profound idea that if you really want to know where you are in life, you have to get lost. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's also like, you know, it's, it's really a great experience to kind of start on zero again and take it from there. So I think that, you know, that's a dimension in the daily life that we're losing because we have Google Maps. And if you're wondering about something, we don't really need the knowledge or need to think too much because we can we believe we can find the answer in a second by Googling it. And that's very practical. But, you know, it le- makes our life slightly more poor. Do you purposely try to get lost when you take walks sometimes? Yes, absolutely. I walk in the mountains and the forest, but also in the big cities. When I get to a new city, I like to walk the city. I like to see the city in slow motion. I like to see the city from a different angle than other people. Like uh, two friends myself, we walked through all of LA a few years ago from Eastern LA, down Cesar Chavez Avenue into Sunset Boulevard, all the way to the ocean. And what's interesting was that everybody who travels in LA, a tourist and, and Angelinos, they will sit in a car, they will see their city through the windows. And it's like, you know, it's like seeing the city, you know, in, on, on the screen, on, on the video, on the TV. But when we walked and we saw the same stuff, same matters, but, you know, we saw it over a longer time, we saw the city in a totally new way. And sometimes, you know, we got lost, other times not. But that's, you know, that's the way to see LA, especially because, you know, nobody else is walking. It's, you know, the only, more or less the only people who walked in LA were drug addicts or, or, or prostitutes or insane people. And that also gave it an extra interesting dimension. Well, you said you got stopped by the police a few times who wanted to know what you were doing. They were like, why are you walking, you weirdo? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I actually read about, you know, the police being a bit upset about people walking through particular areas in LA. And I thought, you know, maybe it was kind of a joke, but uh, way east in LA, we were actually stopped by the police and they were suspicious because we were walking. So it had to be something wrong, something strange, you know, but as soon as, you know, 
the police understood we were three Norwegians uh, exploring their city. They asked us if we wanted to you know, take photos together with them. So you, you talk about in the book the idea that walking can serve as a, a way to transition from you know, in our day, you know, going from work to home, or even it can, on a larger scale, might even help us transition from different parts of the year. How does that look in your life? How does walking serve as a, as a transition point? Today, it does it by, you know, I live in a city and I, I work in a city. So I spend time walking, for instance, back and forth to my office. It takes about 30, 35 minutes each way. And just by walking, I see, you know, the, sometimes, you know, quite a lot of the same houses, quite a lot of the same people, the same streets every day. But I could tell by, you know, the faces I see that they're changing, not a lot, a little bit every day. I can see, you know, people who are happy, consider unhappy. I can see, you know, you know, how they feel if they're, if they're in a rush. And it's nothing kind of fantastic, which is happening when you're walking to the, walking to your office, but it's all these small details. It tells a big deal about daily life. It tells a big deal about, you know, the people you're actually living in the same city with and also, you know, transforms you from like, for me, having three kids at home, it's, you know, it's so much noise, so many things to do. And instead of rushing to the office, I walk and then I, you know, get into a different mood and I get ready for a new life every morning to get to my office. And if I've been driving, I would have saved some time, of course, on my watch, but I would have brought the daily life from my home into my office, which, you know, would, you know, make me much less effective at, at the office. I think, you know, you actually need a little bit of time. You need to move slowly to get into a different rhythm and not different mood before you get to the office, if it's possible for you. But I think, you know, again, people tell me all the time, I'm so busy, I don't have time, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, reality is an average Norwegian today would spend around four hours doing social media every day. And we live in this country, probably like in the States, around 82, 83 years time. And that again means that we spend 13 years of our lives, day and night, doing social media. So when people tell me they're too busy, they don't have time for walking, they don't have time for that, they don't have time for silence, I think they are underestimating themselves. So you mentioned when you walk, you see people, you can see they're happy if they're rushed. And you can tell a lot, not just by the way someone's face looks about what they're, what they are, what they're going through in life, but also just by the way someone walks in their life, you can tell a lot about a person, how they walk. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's, I've, I not found that very interesting because of course, when you walked on the street, you see the faces on a few, for a few seconds and that, you know, can tell a little bit, but if, to me, it's too brief, too short. But when you look at people, how they walk, you can, you know, you can watch them for 10 seconds, half a minute, even several minutes if you walk the same direction. And that again, you know, tell you a lot about what the people are, you know, what kind of lives they're living. Like a guy, the street uh, where I live, he's a army officer. And, you know, the army officer, he walks in a particular way, kind of this confident kind of 
self, full of self-confidence. He walks up the street. And then I get into the city. I see this, you know, hipsters that have a different gait. And then again, you see some beggars. And, you know, their daily lives are somehow inscribed into their bodies and also inscribed into the way they actually, they've been walking like a beggar. It's somehow in the life of a beggar that kind of, you know, inscribed in their gates. You can, you know, they don't get away from it. And so this, you know, the way people walk is very much kind of based upon, you know, their lives, their social status. And of course, it's, it's with genes. So when I look at my daughters, when they were one or two years old, they learn how to walk, you know, they kind of they still walk the same way. No, I've, I've noticed that when I, when I read that section, I started thinking about how I recognize people. And one way, like if you're in a crowded area where it's hard to see faces, like at a park, for example, and I'm watching my kids or I'm trying to find my kids, instead of looking at faces, I look at the whole body of these kids to see how they're moving. Um, I can find, I can spot my kid by the way they move their body. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it could spot the kids, but also think it's kind of, you know, interesting when you watch people walk, you know, to guess, you know, what are you thinking and uh, what's going on in the mind. And, you know, it's also, I read this report that the police, though, of course, they have depend on fingerprints in the investigation work for, for decades. But now they're starting to analyze how people work. And I think now walk. And I think, you know, eventually that would be at least or even maybe even more accurate than fingerprints to identify uh, people. And, and talking about this idea of how walking or the way we walk changes the way, depending on how we feel. You can always tell someone who's really tired from just life, right? So it could be a beggar or it could be just someone who's really stressed out at work. But you said there's, you, you noticed that there's a difference between the tiredness of someone who's just world weary and the tiredness of someone who just got back from a, an invigorating hike, that there's a difference between those type of gates. It's a, it's a huge difference. And, you know, when I walk in the streets and see people who are down, who are tired, you know, it's a kind of a sadness quite often when you see them. Their life is tough. But then when you, you know, when you go, for instance, on a hike in the forest, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, maybe you could even see the same people, all the people, when they start on, out on their hikes, they also look a bit, quite often a bit tired, a bit restless, not that happy. But, I think almost everybody I see returning from a hike, they look happy. They are smiling. And I think that's just, you know, as I said, that, you know, you move and you are being moved. And uh, Hippocrates, the father of the modern medicine for more, to, more than 2,000 years ago, of course, he said that walking is the best medicine. But he also said that if you're in a bad mood, go for a walk. And if you're still in bad mood, go for another walk. And that's, you know, that holds up, I think, for for everybody, at least everybody uh, I know about. It is solved by walking. It's solved by walking, okay. exactly. It's solved by walking. Uh, you, you talk about the story of Adam and Eve and that the story of Adam and Eve is a story about walking. What can Adam and Eve teach us about walking and being human? Quite a lot, I think. I remember when I went to children's school, I learned about Adam and Eve, how Adam was tempted by Eve, and how they were chased out of paradise as a you know, dramatic story. But today I look at, at it, you know, very differently. I think, you know, everyday life in paradise, you know, they lasted, you know, one single very important thing, and that's excitement. You know, it was 
they didn't have any excitement at all. Life was very, very boring. So of course it was tempting to, you know, try an apple from the tree of wisdom as Adam did. So I think you know, they were fully aware of what they were doing. And I don't think they were chased out of paradise. I think they actually walked out of paradise voluntarily because they were fed up. In that way, of course, even Adam became the world's first wanderers so or the first explorers by leaving paradise. And as I said earlier on, making their lives much more difficult than it had to be. And in that sense, I think Adam and Eve, you know, they're kind of role models because I think, you know, I'm struggling with it. And I think most people I know, you know, they're struggling with it, that, you know, life quite often can be very unexciting and you need to find excitement in your life. And then you actually have sometimes to leave what you're doing, walk away and do something differently. Right. Like Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit. Yeah. He had to take a walk. <laughs> he had to walk out of the Shire yeah. to go on that and make life a little bit harder for himself. In this book, you talk about, you mentioned this guy. I'm going to probably not get his name right because I think it's Norwegian. Arne Nais? Nais? Yeah, you know, reached this improving. All right. It has improved <laughs> since last time. Well, he has this idea, this sort of, he created a formula for happiness. Yeah, I think, you know, Arne Ness was a leading Norwegian philosopher and he made this formula for happiness. And, you know, it's like happiness equals like, you know, a big part of glow. And the glow, he thought about fervor or joy. But then you also need in life, you need pain. You need a little bit of bodily pain and you need mental pain. So, you know, it's a combination between glow that can be multiplied by itself or more on one side and then pain on the other side. And I think that's something, you know, which is very easy to forget in daily life that you don't think that you, know, you should only have pleasures, you should only have happiness, you know, and talk to kids, but also grown-ups that said that, you know, uh, all I want to be is to be happy. And then, they, you know, then they forget that it's a meaning with pain. And it's not possible only to be happy. So, you know, pain is was given to us as human beings as a very important thing. And also important, you know, it's all the way that you can actually feel happiness is that somehow you relate to, to, to pain in life. So this goes back to your idea of, you know, putting struggle into our lives. And, you know, another philosopher, Peter Wesselzopf, he wrote a book on the tragic. And he said that, you know, when you take shortcuts in life, you rob yourself of that happiness or that, or just a, you rob yourself of being of an opportunity to be human when you take a shortcut. I think so, because, you know, it's, uh, as I said earlier on, it's possible to make life, at least for most Norwegians and most Americans, it's possible to make life super simple, super easy throughout almost every day. But that, as, you know, Safa says, this other Norwegian philosopher says, then you're not living a life as a human being. You're living a very dull life. You're living a very unfree life because it's, it is obvious what you're going to choose because you're only going to choose the, the easiest option. And, you know, and a free man, he possesses time and he possesses choices and he is key to fulfill his, his own potentials. And I think that's super important because I think, you know, in one way, all this talk about happiness, I think, you know, happiness is a bit overrated in the sense that people like to have happiness from minute to minute. 
and that's not possible. It's 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 uh, very naive, and yeah, I think you know it's. I, I think I I don't enjoy freezing. I don't enjoy pain, but it's an important part of life. And a few weeks ago, I had this problem with my appendix. Actually, it ruptured. It was super painful. I had to go through surgery. I was staying in the hospital, and I was very down. And I got off to the hospital, and after a few days, I started to feel good again. I started to feel healthy again, and that's a great feeling. That you kind of you know this disease, the weakness, eventually leave your body, and then you feel strong again. And you know. And I think that's one of the best feelings ever. And if it hadn't been for the problems with my appendix, you know, I wouldn't have had that problem. And of course, to say with freezing, it could be terrible. But then again, when eventually you get warm again, that's the best feeling. And walking is a way you can add that, you know, bit of, a little bit of hardship into your life on a regular basis. I think it's I think it's important actually to you know to walk from A to B because it's practical it's good but sometimes you know I advise people to the extent I can advise anyone to you know try to do some really long walks every now and then go on for hours get really tired wear yourself down and not because it you know gives of health benefits but because it's it's a beautiful feeling and Eventually, at least that's my experience. When you get tired, you kind of stop thinking. You're just being, you're, you're just experiencing the whole situation. And then again, when you eventually make it back home, you can relax. It's a tremendous feeling. You have a, maybe have a shower. Uh, you have something good to eat. And that food, of course, has never tasted better than it does after you have actually been on a long walk. All right, so uh, you can walk in the city, do it as frequently as you can. You recommend also taking a you know a long, a really long walk every now and then. Any other walks you recommend or that you've done, like walking at night or walking in bad weather, like just walk whenever. Yeah, I, I think you know it's quite it's 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 led my kids to say they say no, we don't want to walk because it's raining, and you know that again is a huge misunderstanding and. Because, you know, I think, you know, quite often things look more interesting and more beautiful when it rains. And also maybe you get a little bit wet, but when you eventually get into a house again, you get the beautiful feeling of drying up and getting the heat back. So I try to walk totally independent of the weather. And in a few weeks, I plan to walk with two friends, just walk Broadway in New York. From up north down to downtown uh, Manhattan, just walk it at night time. It's it's nothing big. It's free. It doesn't cost any money. I'm just doing it to see the city in the dark, see what's happening in the dark throughout the whole night. And so it's not an expedition. It's just about you know about learning about other people and of course you know learning about myself. One of the interesting arguments you make in the book is that the slowness of walking can actually be countercultural. Absolutely. I think, you know, also because so much in our society is about speed. You have to hurry up all the time. Everybody says they're short on time. They have to go from A to B in, in high speed. 
They have to have to be on the phone all the time. They have to check the news three times every hour, although they know nothing has happened. You have this super restless attitude throughout the whole society. And of course, the government is very much about speed. They want you to speed up because you're going to create gross national product. Businesses would like you to speed up because they would like you not to consume. So either you should hurry up from A to B or you should sit down and consume. And the educational system is also very much about speed because you're going to go through school at the quickest possible to, to be, become a good taxpayer. Um, all this is good, but, you know, has good sides, but it also has, you know, it's also kind of a little bit, you know, negative to our daily lives. So in that sense, I think to walk today has become one of the most radical things you can do. Yeah, it's it's a it can make you free, right? Instead of you sort of it's an act of rebellion in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's also, exactly. It can make you free. It can also, you know, it's even a little bit anarchistic in the sense that if you take the metro or drive a car, or take a plane, whatever, someone else is deciding your speed, deciding where you can stop, deciding what you can see, what you can do, etc. But if you walk, you do it in your own pace. You can stop whenever you like. You can, you know, you can look around you. So in that sense, it's not a huge anarchistic thing, of course, but it's a tiny anarchistic movement to be walking. Well, Arlene, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I think, you know, it's when I wrote my book on walking, I tried to make it really short. Uh, I spent a year and a half to write those few words because my idea was that you know people could spend one evening maybe two reading my book and if they want to learn more they shouldn't necessarily google me or walking but they should go out walking themselves and maybe find their own self poles i love it well, arlene kage thanks so much time it's been a pleasure thank you my guest was Arlene Kage. He is the author of the book, Walking. It's available on amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash walking. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written about personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to learn more or experience voluntary hardship, check out our online program, The Strenuous Life at strenuouslife.co. It's an online program that we've put in place, help you put into action all the things we've been writing about and talking about on the podcast for the past 10 years. We've done that by creating a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's hard skills like self-defense, wilderness survival, rucking. We also have soft skills like personal finance, uh, public speaking, things like that. We also have weekly challenges. They're going to put you outside of your comfort zone, physically, mentally, socially, and we hold you accountable for your physical fitness on a daily basis. So check it out, strenuouslife.co. Get on our waiting list. Our next enrollment is January 2020. Hope to see you there. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout. And once you're signed up, you get a free month trial. You can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Music.